is up, everybody? My name is James Deep Shorey, and this is Black Bolt Sunday Report. Uh, this has been an interesting week. Karima Saad did a, a very extensive piece, an investigative report, uh, basically about the anti-hate network and the influence that it has, and then questioning why it has that influence. It's called the Hate Gate Affair, Unmasking Canada's Hate Industry. It was a really, really thorough piece, really interesting. I find it a little troubling that mainstream media outlets haven't piggybacked on this story. Uh, I think there's been a couple mentions, but uh, the way that uh, I've been sort of trying to summarize or ascertain why that is, is, is the typical thing about how it is impossible to sort of be a mainstream outlet and make it look like you're not uh, in the on the right side of history. And that I'm very, very, that's a very simplified way of putting it. But uh, let's have uh, Karima join us so she can, you know, correct me and be uh, a little bit more thorough than I was. Karima, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for having uh, me. I just want to let you know I'm a little under the weather and uh, I'm also hearing voices. So just bear with me <laughs> for the remainder of the show. Uh, I really enjoyed your piece. I actually, uh, I read it uh, over a period of two days and I was really struck by by a bunch of things. One is that uh, it's it's hard for the public at large, especially people who are familiar with Jeremy McKenzie, to humanize him. And I find that troubling because we tend to one-dimensionalize people, and, and that that is uh, how their personal brand will be forever. And I, I, I like the fact that you uh, step out of like a media comfort zone and just you know lay facts down on the table so that people can understand. What happened with Diagalon and the Canadian Anti-Hate Network? And uh, I, I would like you to just sort of like give me uh, sort of the Coles notes first, and then we'll dig in a little bit deeper as we go along in the show. Sure. Um, so th thank you for that. Um, to your initial point, primacy bias is a real thing. So the first that we hear about someone or something typically is what sticks. And then it becomes sort of a matter of confirmation bias, where new information, we try to fit into that existing framework. Um, so I think that that creates something of a mental hurdle when people are confronted with information that doesn't quite jive with what they understood something to be. Uh, and the one-dimensional thinking, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, um, and I would attribute at least some of it to the way that we consume and receive information and how we are overloaded with information and the tendency to take shortcuts, right? And make snap judgments and then those stick. Um, as far as a Cole's notes of the Hategate affair, um, it came about because uh, I was given access to freedom of information packages from um, more or less the RCMP, that was the primary source, um, over a thousand pages of documents that focused on the RCMP and its knowledge and dealings with Diagalon. Um, and, you know, for those who aren't familiar, Diagalon is, you know, it, it was kind of a boogeyman um, during the Freedom Convoy, where a lot of really heavy loaded terminology was thrown around, um, most notably 
violent extremist militia. Uh, so it sounded like a very serious thing. Uh, but in reviewing these documents, it became obvious that the RCMP in its assessment and analysis was relying primarily on a single source, uh, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, an organization that isn't law enforcement, um, but has produced articles and analysis, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard <laughs> to define, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So they've, they've produced, you know, material on uh, Diagalon and its leader, leader, Jeremy McKenzie. Um, and the RCMP relied very heavily on that. It relied on media, which also was quoting anti-hate as experts. Um, and sort of there was this feedback loop between law enforcement, media, and the government where they were building off of each other's hype and assessments that, that weren't actually based in reality. Um, and despite uh, Mackenzie making multiple overtures to speak with law enforcement, nobody went directly to the source. And it, there was a frenzy that came about. And, you know, this was a factor, not a singular determinative reason, but a factor in the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And, you know, the, the takeaway that I had and that I hope other people do as well is that there's something very wrong with our state national security media apparatus where something like this can gain traction and be used or accepted as evidence, uh, even though upon closer examination, there's no evidence of militia and violent extremism. Yeah, the Canada's Can Can Hate Network has a very odd position because when you look at law enforcement, you they, they have to do thorough investigations. They have to fact check their work, obviously, so that they don't incarcerate people unfairly and things like that. And then the media, obviously, you need tertiary sources. You need to figure out if what you're saying is true. And the Canada's Can Hate Network doesn't have either of those things. And it, it seems to me that they, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, they have a narrative and their narrative is the title of the organization we've talked about this before I, I i'm starting to get annoyed with organizations where just because the title is something you have to agree with doesn't mean that you have to agree with the actual organization so you know just because they're called the canada can, is it the canadian or canada's canadian canadian anti-hate anti network uh, who's going to disagree with anti-hate but the way that they operate seems to me is very hollow and also it's it didn't Bernie Fry, I re, when I read the piece uh, I, I don't remember the details of this particular section of the piece but Bernie Farber seems to go after organizations that he has a personal issue with right like like it doesn't seem like these organizations are necessarily necessarily doing anything illegal but he kind of it feels like and maybe I was misinterpreting that part of the piece but it feels like uh, he was he goes after organizations that he disagrees with and the low-hanging fruit often, like the Heritage Foundation, for example. That so the, the connection to the Heritage Front um, is quite interesting. And actually, I, I would 
flesh that out maybe first um because it belies some of what the anti-hate network purports to stand for um it, for those who aren't familiar the heritage front um, in the early 90s was canada's worst neo-nazi organization to this day um wreaking havoc on the streets there were fire bombings associated um assaults uh, petty criminality and targeting of anti-racist activists um, and sort of at its heyday um, the organization was led uh, and co-founded by a man named grant bristow and grant bristow he turned out to be a CSIS mole um, and this came about because the co-author of the piece elisa hadigan um, she was a member of the heritage front she defected, she was undercover for a bit, feeding as much information as she could to these anti-racist activists. She testified against the Heritage Front in court and the, cul like the culmination of the evidence that she provided led a Toronto Sun reporter to uncover that Grant Bristow was an agent of the state, essentially. Um, and the reason this ties in to Bernie Farber and the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Bernie Farber, uh, you know, has openly said that he is friends with Grant Bristow. There's been no apology really for his behavior, which involved serious criminality, counseling people to commit crimes. Um, and there's this parallel that exists where we had uh, with the Heritage Front, what was effectively a proxy organization for the Canadian government where they used civilians to target other civilians. And the way the Canadian Anti-Hate Network operates, again, we have a group of civilians who focus primarily on other civilians rather than institutional issues, for example. So in its mandate of monitoring far-right activity, a lot of what the anti-hate network produces uh, are hit pieces against individual citizens who are more or less nobodies. Um, and that's kind of what we saw with Mackenzie and Diagalon, because whatever you think of the content of the podcast, it's kind of irrelevant. Um, you know, irrelevant in the sense that was it a violent extremist militia as represented to be? No. Uh, and so there's this arbitrary nature of, well, why this guy? Why these allegations? And because there is so much op opacity around the anti-hate network, you know, it's hard to get those answers. I can't remember if it was Justin Ling or not, but I remember having a discussion with somebody about the idea that satire has been historically used by far-right organizations as a shield to get away with hateful things. Why is Diagonal not put in that pile? It really comes down to what is being, you know, what, what are the messages being portrayed? And something that did come out in the RCMP documents that we saw repeatedly, you know, these ideas could inspire a lone actor um, or someone to, you know, this, this notion of 
um, there's a term for it, stochastic terrorism. Um, although I don't know that they used that precise term, but the idea that a lone wolf might, you know, take inspiration from this. You can say um, that about every, anything. Right, but that that's the thing. You can say that about anything. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would push back a little bit. I think it's fair to say and accurate, and there's research on um, far right or right wing groups sort of shielding themselves with humor um, and satire, et cetera. Um, but in how and how to address that and balance the importance of expression and curbing overreach by the state, you know, that's not that's not an easy analysis to make. Um, and the bottom line is that there was nothing identified in these documents that would point to any counseling to violence, anything along those lines, nothing in, in any of you know, the analysis that, that occurred. Um, so I guess I, I, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Uh, I, I want to read an excerpt from uh, from your piece, which is actually part of the testimony that Jerry McKenzie gave uh, under oath at the Public Order Emergency Commission. Uh, he said, It is my opinion that the foundation work by the Canadian Anti-Hate Network as it pertains to targeting me as a previously government-funded okay, uh, has enjoyed a fair amount of government funding to target and smear people that they you know, consider perhaps politically inconvenient or people that they just want to shut up. They regularly engage in defamatory statements out of context statements. They'll take a clip here, a sentence there, and stitch it together to make it appear something that it is not. From there, some media outlets, legacy media outlets, lazily, unfortunately it appears, took it at face value, copy, paste, print the story, then which is consumed by police officers, which again, unfortunately, rather than doing any digging themselves or investigating or asking me a single question, take these things at face value and compile these reports and, and, and end up the net... Sorry, compile these reports and up the network it goes until it lands on the desk of the public safety minister 
or you know perhaps the prime minister's office where they faced the with the where they're faced with these scenarios that have no basis in reality i consider this entire situation entirely avoidable this none of this needed to happen and it's absurd and i consider the single most embarrassing and grotesque intelligence failure in national history it might be an overstatement for his part jeremy made numerous overtures to speak with law enforcement and tried to shed light on the community everyone seemed so concerned about nobody even took him up on the offer it's a pretty good statement uh we talked about this on the phone today is one of the things that makes it hard in our current media ecosystem to give some gives someone like jeremy mckenzie like what would be considered the benefit of the doubt is because sometimes he says things that are really controversial like racist statements and things like that I, you know i and i understand that that has nothing to do and you made this point to me with being labeled a terrorist group but do you think that we get seduced by oh he used the n-word so therefore everything must be wrong and we must take everything that he does in the worst possible context including calling Diagon a terrorist organization i think underlying that right is a lack of understanding and respect for civil liberties um and i say that not and, and even to your example i don't know that i've ever heard him use the n-word for example um and, and people are allowed I to one, have i heard one i heard one clip okay uh, so I, there's like thousands of hours of footage so it's entirely possible i don't know the yeah. context i have reviewed enough to say that i don't endorse a lot of what's said but people are allowed to have opinions that are unpalatable, that are offensive, um, that, you know, cross the bounds of what we consider decency, and that's still not illegal activity. And the more unpopular someone is, or the easier they are to despise, um, the easier they make themselves despicable. Uh, the idea that we can just sort of, they had it coming, uh, you know, turn away from something that shouldn't be happening because, well, you know, it's that guy. So whatever, who cares? We have other fish to fry. I'm not going to stick my neck out for that. Um, but that's exactly how this erosion of rights occurs. Um, and, and so it's that, scenario where we're most vulnerable to normalizing is probably the right word. Um, th this manner of state complicity, uh, overreach, as I've said, um, and just making decision making that's not based on evidence and fact. Um, and there were RCMP officers who throughout the process uh, were pointing out that, you know, this doesn't really meet the definition of a group. Um, you know, there's nothing I can glean that uh, affirms any of these concerns. We are relying on a single source that hasn't been triangulated. There are officers who pointed that out um, along the way, but the path of least resistance is to copy paste and send it up the chain of command. And that's what happened. 
Uh, I'm trying to find. I'm looking at the piece right now, but I, I can't find her name, and I forget it. But what what is with the can the Canadian Anti Hate Networks like pseudonym person? What what, what is that? So about? so there's um the deputy director is uh, called Elizabeth Simons, but I've not been able to verify credentials or that any such person by that name exists. And when faced with that question, um, the executive director of Anti-Hate, Evan Balgord, gets a little bit touchy and won't provide real answers. There are a couple of other individuals at the Canadian Anti-Hate Network who are uh, ostensibly staff, uh, who also it's impossible to cl like clarify or assess their credentials or their track record or their education background or what makes them experts. And I think that that lack of transparency, especially where the main bread and butter is going after individual people who do use their real names, there's, there's something very shady about that. I mean, the first thing that I thought of is that that's also an intelligence officer because you know that's everyone has a code name right like that's they're not usually using their real names and if they're government funded why can't we figure out the answer to that question the government funding primarily came from a grant that it expired in 2022 so right now on their website they say they're not currently receiving any government funds. Um, I don't know the specifics of their income flow. Uh, I don't know, for example, if they are providing consulting or other services to public entities, um, you know, where donations come from. Uh, you know, there's certain information that's been requested through Freedom of Information, but because it is a nonprofit, um, there is sort of a degree of separation between that and sort of a, a public department that, you know, there's an easier way to, to get information. So what was your conclusion um, when you unpacked everything and you realized that this organization seems to have undue influence and they don't answer to anybody? And what is is there going to be is there any mechanisms that can change that or is there going to be any blowback for the canadian anti-hate network what do you foresee is going to happen if anything it's it's hard to predict um in a rational world um media would be asking tough questions and looking at themselves to say where have we quoted them can we verify this information? You know, it's based on what, uh, but that there is a reluctance, uh, I think, to do that because they, they're now in it, right? There's egg on media's face. And so it's much easier to pretend that this is not happening. Um, you know, and yeah, that, that's kind of, my assessment at this point, like the good news is that 
we don't have to rely exclusively on Canadian media uh, to make the story move. That's right. And um, do you think that, I mean, with, it is a pretty, like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I agree with Jeremy that it's like the most, I, don't, I can't remember what words he used, but the biggest national intelligence failure of all time or something, but, or travesty. It, doesn't he have grounds for a lawsuit? Like, they basically said that he was a terrorist. Like, is, is, or are we living in an environment where, because it's Jeremy McKenzie, he probably won't win, and no one can really explain why? It's probably best that I don't opine on a case where I'm not the counsel. Oh, okay. I didn't know there was a case. He, so he is suing? No, I, I, I'm, I'm oh. the, even to speculate on the facts, it's probably best that I not do that on a live stream. Okay, my bad. I do that a lot to you over the years. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but listen, it, 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 it's been well received. Uh, again, it's you guys should go and read it. It's, it's, it's really a compelling read. It's called The Hate Gate Affair, Unmasking Canada's Hate Industry. Um, it's by Karima Saad and also Lisa Hadigan. And listen, I, I think that this was, I mean, this is award-winning stuff, I think. And it, I, what I find a little frustrating about it is that, as I said at the beginning, the lack of interest from the mainstream media to cover it. Like, you should be on CBC and CTV and Global. You should be doing all of those interviews because this is important. But this is something that we also talked about off-air, about how when you're an organization that lands in a certain spot in the political spectrum like media outlets shy away from it you 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 have the balls to to humanize jeremy mckenzie and to downplay the danger of diaglon and you're right on both accounts and i don't think the regular legacy media has that same courage give it time karima sad thank you very much i appreciate your time you have to say goodbye now oh Thanks. I, I didn't know. I thought you would end it. Bye, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> you need the romper room, Mara. Thanks, Kareem. We'll talk soon, okay? Bye. Kareem Asad, listen, go go and, and read that piece. It is, it is compelling. It is thorough. It's a, a real investigative piece. Uh, you know, like I said, the, the, there's a marketing involved with uh, certain organizations, uh, including Black Lives Matter, to be honest with you. Like, like Black Lives Matter as a statement is the most easy to agree with statement of all time but the organization they're a stated marxist organization i mean i'm a marxist so i'm not going to support that um you know and then they stole a bunch of money and bought mansions so like you know you don't have to agree with the organization if you agree with the title of the organization and i find that to be almost like a uh, a shell game in a way uh listen no one wants hate um but if you put warren kinsella on your advisory board misguided uh tomorrow on the show we will have i have to get back to him actually i, I i'm confirming i've confirmed it but i haven't uh i haven't talked to him about time yet but we are going to welcome uh, mike deval divillier i don't know man d-i-v-i-l-l-a-e-r devillier uh anyways he, he's done a book uh, and the book is a I'm sorry, guys. I'm not organized today. I am. I'm having a rough day. He's written a book about the uh, the the how the legalization of weed sort of came into play. I'm actually in the book because of the work that I did with the Liberal Party, and uh, and I was just this little, very minor role in uh, in sort of the 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 way that uh, legalization sort of came to be. 
And uh, so he's going to be here on Monday. Uh, Wednesday, we're going to have a Plymouth Brethren show, and then we'll be back for Casual Friday. And then next week, of course, the Black Ball Sunday Report. Again, I'm a little under the weather. That's why we wrap short. And uh, yeah, uh, so until then, we'll see you next time. Oh, Black Ball. Black Did Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast, NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.